Welcome to Over the River and Through the Woods, the podcast where we forage and share stories from the diverse ecology of the Episcopal Church in Minnesota. I am your host, Amelia C. Allen. Today, I'm going to share with you a wonderful conversation I was privileged to have a few months ago with the Reverend Howard Anderson. Howard told me about his time leading the Native American Theological Association, an ecumenical organization built to support indigenous leaders in formation for ordination. It's a wholly rich story, and I can't wait to share it with you now. Will you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Howard Anderson. Um, I grew up in Northern Minnesota uh, and and in the Detroit Lakes area. I uh, went to college in in St. Paul at Hamlin and then did my MA and PhD at the University of Hawaii and uh, studied indigenous education. So uh, I came back and was gonna be a college professor but ended up being drawn into the church and was a lay professional in the Episcopal church and ecumenically for 17 years before I was ordained and worked for the Diocese of Minnesota in several capacities over, gosh, almost 10 years. And then was rector at St. Paul's Duluth, then to the National Cathedral, then to a parish in California to, and retired now back, uh, back home in Northern Minnesota. Excellent. In 1976, there were only two indigenous people in all US and Canadian mainline seminaries and a group of native clergy and some other church leaders secured a grant from the Lilly Endowment. It was uh, based in uh, New Brighton, Minnesota, United Theological Seminary, but it involved five mainline denominations. And our goal was to help create an environment where indigenous people could make it through the master divinity program. I happened to get hired even though the other finalists were indigenous because um, I had a a PhD. So the seminary types would listen to me. I had shown a predilection to be able to raise money. And my doctoral program had been deeply researching how education needed to take the culture of the people being educated into serious consideration. So we started out, uh, I I was all over the continent recruiting, uh, hopefully the best and the brightest indigenous people that, that indigenous churches are putting forward for the ordination process. And one of the things we knew we had to do was to make sure if there was a seminary that was going to entertain uh, educating indigenous people, there had to be a community of them. So uh, the first year, United Seminary had 12 indigenous students from everywhere from Alaska to Arizona. Uh, Dubuque Seminary, they were United Church of Christ Seminary, but very ecumenical and had an Anglican studies program to boot. Um, Dubuque Seminary, the Presbyterian Seminary in Iowa, had, I think, five or six indigenous, all Presbyterians. And Luther Seminary had three um, indigenous students. The kinds of things that made 
indigenous people drop out of seminary was that lack of community to people who get them culturally, uh, uh, an insensitivity on the part of the seminaries and even the ordination processes and the judicatories, the, the major groups that were involved with uh, the Na Native American Theological Association students were the Episcopal Church, by far the largest, the Presbyterian second largest, United Church of Christ third, and then a kind of a smattering of Methodists, Roman Catholics, um, and others. And so those, those judicatory ordination processes need to be worked with, the seminaries needed to be worked with. Um, so I, because we had the, uh, the respect and attention of the seminaries and denominations through getting a, a quite a, a sizable Lilly Endowment grant, Lilly funded um, religious innovation really and, and revitalization efforts across the continent. They, they would pay attention to us. There was also all these awful racist things. I give you the story of Fritz Eagleshield, who was one of the students at United Seminaries in, in the first year. Mm -hmm. um, Fritz had five children mm -hmm. and he, he was the one that community in South Dakota in his United Church of Christ Church said, he's the guy. He's mm -hmm. our spiritual leader, our Itanshan in, in the Lakota, Wichashawakan, mm -hmm. a holy person. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't find housing. And the seminary, of course, didn't have housing for uh, a family that size. And we finally found what we thought was a good place in St. Paul. He, he called and they, he went down and they said, oh, it's already rented. I, I, I smelled a rat. So I called and they said, oh, no, come down. And I did. And they said, oh, yeah, it's still open. So I, I waved Fritz in and I said, I think you're going to rent this to Fritz. And yeah. not only going to rent it to him, you're going to give him a break on the rent. Yeah. And this is blackmail. I'm telling yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, I will report you to the city of St. Paul and you'll, you'll lose your license to be a landlord. And so Fritz spent his whole three years at, at a bargain basement rent uh, <laughs> with a very attentive landlord. But oh. those are the kind of things the indigenous students faced over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And then judicatories just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And they would use, and the seminaries would use the excuse, but so-and-so doesn't have an undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. And I said, so, big deal. I was working with the Association of Theological Schools. Mm -hmm. And its director and I became close friends. He was a Cajun from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Association of Theological Schools allowed seminaries to take a certain number of students without uh, undergraduate degree. And I had to remind the seminaries of that. So there were all these roadblocks. And then in order to stay well, to stay in connection to their communities, they had to go back and forth some if there was a funeral. And I remember one student had lost three grandmothers in one semester. <laughs> and this, the seminary said he was just trying to get uh, NATA to give him funding to go back home. And, I, and they said, you can't lose that many grandmothers. And I said, you know, in the Lakota way, your grandmother and her sisters are all your grandmothers. And if you don't pay attention to those links, 
back home, you'll never be able to go back and serve. And then we had the, the missionary and colonial um, wreckage that it had created. The, missionary, uh, the missionaries who were Episcopalians were pretty good. But most of the others said the work of the devil was your culture before Christianity, and we've come to bring light mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. darkness. Well, we had to get native leaders, many of whom have been trained in these Bible schools and so on, mm -hmm. to break that colonial mindset. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty amazing when it started to happen. Mm -hmm. And judicatory leaders like Simon Looking Elk who was Dakota Presbytery, was, there's a whole presbytery or judicatory of indigenous churches. Mm -hmm. And he had to stand strong against much criticism to say we were Lakota first. Mm -hmm. And Jesus came into our culture in the coming of the white buffalo calf woman who mm -hmm. told us not only here's the pipe to pray with, but wait, one called Wanikia, the savior will be coming to you pay attention. Wow. wow. So they had in their culture, the coming of Jesus into their culture. Wow. And that had to be stressed. Yeah. It was the most amazing change. And I believe in the six or seven years that NATO was really thriving, probably maybe eight years. I led it for uh, six. Mm -hmm. All across native North America, just like a wind of the spirit, the cultures were beginning to be honored. The pipe mm. showed on the altar. People prayed in their own languages, as they always had, but also prayed and started to call God what God had wanted them to call before the Christians came. Tachashala, yeah. grandfather, a grandmother. Wanikia, mm. uh, savior. So it was, a, it was a transformative thing, like a wind blowing, a, a fresh wind blowing the spirit across Indian wow. country. Wow. And then we, then we had to change the Washichus, the, the white people, <laughs> all, all of us white people. So yeah. what, what we did every summer, we had the Black Hills summer term. And we would bring this, and we rotated from the Episcopal camp in the Black Hills to the Presbyterian camp in the Black Hills to the Episcopal camp in the Black Hills. And in these beautiful settings, we would invite the medicine men and women in. There would be sweat lodges and the bishops and the seminary deans and professors would be there teaching, but also sitting in the sweat lodge, also at the feet of the medicine men and women. Mm. And they begin, they begin to make the connections. Um, and then in the winter, we would bribe them. One of the schools that wasn't a seminary, Cook Christian Training School, who is president, Cecil Corbett, a Nez Perce, had really been the primary researcher to document for the Lilly Endowment how terrible the situation was in the seminaries. Yeah. And we had a whole month of winter term there where the seminary professors would come and teach and indigenous people would come from all over the country, really all over the continent to learn. And the interaction again would be between the indigenous folks, the indigenous clergy, who would also come in the seminary professors. So ties were made human to human, oh. culture to culture. And it began to change how the seminaries taught and what and how they began to respect um, 
these indigenous teachings and these and the unique situations of the indigenous seminarians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and while there were only two US in the only two indigenous students in all US and Canadian seminaries, just in my six years or so, there were 76 MDivs wow. through the native program. Wow. Several of them became bishops. Wow. Several of them became executive presbyters. Uh, several of them became seminary professors, wow. had gone on to get grad uh, PhDs. It, it was a, a truly remarkable Pentecost uh, breakthrough in the indigenous churches. Yeah. Sadly, our own hubris ended it not long after I left. Uh, we hired uh, one of our own graduates who is now the leader of indigenous ministries for the, Episco or for the Presbyterian church mm -hmm. nationwide. And he was excellent. Mm -hmm. But then the Episcopalian said, well, we have all these students, we can do it alone. And the Presbyterians mm -hmm. said, oh. And they tried it and they just sort of fell, fell apart and they couldn't do it and they aren't doing it. Mm -hmm. Ada needs to be reborn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For indigenous seminarians, to, it didn't matter whether you were Lakota or Ojibwe or Pima or Papago or Shinnecock, none of that mattered. You were indigenous and you knew basically what my culture was like and you, mm -hmm. brother and sister. And not only in Christ, but tribally. Mm. So that's what that's what made NATO work. And and it, it things like getting these native leaders to come in. We had in the Episcopal Church in our canons. If someone whose first language was not English, and this was primarily for Province Nine, uh, the Spanish-speaking part of our church. Mm -hmm. You had to have a person whose whose primary language was the language of the seminarian, so they could interpret things like canonical exams. Mm. So the Lakota um, priest was being grilled by some fairly pompous white uh, priests in our diocese, mm -hmm. and Lyle Noisyhawk was the uh, Lakota speaking longtime priest from South Dakota, we brought in to interpret mm -hmm. particular Lakota speaking student mm -hmm. in Minnesota. He did get ordained, by the way. Mm. And one of the, 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 the seminary dean at the time asked, asked a question about, a, about grace. Mm -hmm. Student kind of went blank. And Lyle talked to him, I have enough, because my two doctoral languages are Ojibwe and Lakota. Okay. And he basically talked about what, what this grace was. Mm -hmm. And the student immediately put that together with the seminary learning and his culture and uh -huh. back and forth. And with me participating a bit. Yeah. Uh, and this priest, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> this priest said, grace, is like when the mother bird puts her wing around her young. Mm. That's, that's the kind of image yeah. that any Christian of any tradition could hang on to and love. Yes. 
but it took breaking through the colonial thinking, the hubris of our white academic culture. And some of the seminary professors actually got it. And some of the bishops, and I think there were probably, I think seven dioceses where I had to go out and help with those processes. And, And often things would happen in the indigenous community because life in, in, in the 70s, the average life expectancy of indigenous people was almost 15 to 20 years less than in the white community. Mm. So relatives died. And I had to raise the money to get those people home for those. Yeah. It, it was, well, surely the most amazing spirit-filled thing I've ever encountered or been a part of. Yeah. And I believe that it doesn't exist anymore. I, I grieve that when I was directing Indian ministry for the Diocese of Minnesota and together with the Diocese of North Dakota, uh, we had, we founded three new native congregations. Mm. We're 13 indigenous congregations. It's dwindled down to seven or eight now, mm-hmm. which parallel to what's happening. When I left, the employee of the Diocese of Minnesota, there were 120 some congregations. They're in the 90s now. Mm-hmm. And all across main, mainline Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's nothing, the indigenous churches and communities wouldn't be spared that. But right, right. what an incredible, what an incredible thing the spirit allowed to happen yeah. through the American Theological Association. Yeah. And money we needed just fell out of heaven. There was mm-hmm. some um, church-related capital campaign ever done at the time was uh, Ventures in Mission of the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. And dioceses all over the American church heard about Native. We told the story, sent us not tens of thousands, but hundreds oh. of thousands. Yeah. That had no indigenous congregations. Wow. For instance, indigenous history, and probably not a good history, said this is our reparations. Hmm. Are ignoring the needs of our indigenous brothers and sisters. The Presbyterian Major Mission Fund put up over half, I think three quarters of a million dollars. Oh. Not just all into NADA, but we're talking 1970s and early 80s. Yeah. Imagine what it would be now. Yeah. Try to ramp up the knowledge of indigenous cultures and congregations. So yeah. the whole thing just turned loose the spirit. Yeah. And it was, it was like I say, the wind blowing yeah. strongly across the churches. Yeah. And no one's ever even written the history of this, I don't think. Nobody even <laughs> more. And sadly, because of life expectancy, so many of those wonderful native clergy, even in our diocese, yeah. Martin Red Elk, who went on to be a professor at Seabury Western and died of a heart attack mm. before he could really get established. Mm. And Gary Cavender, who helped to build the most incredible church in the Prairie Lake community, the uh, Prior Lake community, mm. young, basically because he was a Vietnam vet, mm. 
and suffered from Agent Orange related diseases. Mm. And Leslie Bobtail Bear, who was a Mazakute in St. Paul, who died young. And uh, just uh, Doyle Turner, who just died recently and mm -hmm. was one that lived a long time. It, it, I look at in the uh, Anishinaabeg today, the White Earth paper, mm -hmm. and I look at the obituaries and weep every month because yeah. I knew all the grandparents and parents of these young people who are taking their own lives mm -hmm. or dying of overdose. And I feel like the diocese has let this whole thing fall in a heap. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob does a wonderful job, but he's half time. Yeah. And, and we had, I was full time. I had staff. Yeah. We had 13 churches. Uh, Episcopal Community Services, which is gone, had ministries all across the diocese and indigenous communities. It's all gone. It's all yeah. gone. Yeah. I grieve. Yeah. Um, what, I have a couple of questions for you. Um, thank you so much for sharing that story and for sharing those stories. They're just, it's so um, inspiring to hear those stories and to hear that we have a history of building deep um, intercultural relationship, that we have a history of learning from one another and having our own faith and our own relationships expanded exactly. um, by, this, by this deep relationship. Um, if, um, you know, setting aside the, the fact that, um, that the Episcopal Church is going the way of all mainline churches and that our, um, our resources are decreasing and our numbers are decreasing and our population is aging, um, setting aside some of those, those logistical factors, um, but starting from where we are today, what would you love to see? Um, can I take us? Can, can I take us back? Because that's where this. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Bishop yeah. Whipple. I, I remember one time being at a gathering in northern Minnesota of Ojibwe Episcopalians, and uh, someone from the Twin Cities was there, a priest that was supportive, said, "Why are all Why are all the tribal leaders in northern Minnesota Episcopalians?" Mm -hmm. and, Dan Brown, who was a senior warden at St. Peter's Cast Lake on the Leech Lake, stood up and said, it's simple. While other Minnesotans after the Dakota Rebellion were hanging indigenous people, mm -hmm. Bishop Whipple was ordaining us. Yeah. My training is in family systems. Mm -hmm. And the, the, just like all family systems, like the Christian church, or the Episcopal diocese, the, the strengths and patterns and values of the founding families mm. are very hard to break. Mm. So coming up now, all we need to do is look back and what did Whipple do? Yeah. Whipple, Whipple reached out to the indigenous. He went to Lincoln and said, you simply can't hang all these Dakota leaders mm -hmm. who are trying only to defend their people. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, 400 of them, it was all a kangaroo court. Yeah. Um, but he, Whipple got Lincoln to commute 
438 were hung. Mm -hmm. but, but what we look back at is how can we do other than to do what I see Bishop Loya and the diocesan leadership doing about breaking down our colonial ways of being and reaching to communities of color. Yeah. Amelia, this diocese is beginning to do it. And so what do I desire? I, I think I, I just have been reading through all what, what the, the work has been in, mm -hmm. in what Bishop Loya is laying out. Mm -hmm. We're doing what yeah. I would dream of. We're doing it. And I think it could lead to an, maybe not a growth of buildings or numbers, yeah. but building on what Jesus did, the way of love of Jesus, yeah. the way of love of Whipple, yeah. the way of love that, well, that, frankly, Bob Anderson, I was still working at NADA when Bob was elected the youngest bishop in the Episcopal Church, he was 42 years old. And I met with him the first day he came into the office mm -hmm. to talk about the Indian postulants. Mm -hmm. So we have all this good history. Yeah. And, and these patterns of the founding families, yeah. uh, that's why following the way of Jesus, that's our founding family. Our diocesan family, founding family is Whipple. How can we do other than what Bishop Loy is asking, yeah. feels called to ask us to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, and will you say a little bit more specifically, um, what, are, what are the calls you're hearing that particularly um, stir your spirit? Yeah, it's uh, that, that we, we, we do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly. Mm -hmm. You know, building a building community with the poor and the marginalized is mm -hmm. one of the major goals. Mm -hmm. uh, creating a culture of experimentation and innovation, mm -hmm. a culture of vitality and commitment mm -hmm. uh, to breaking down all the, the walls of race, uh, class, neighborhood that have mm -hmm. kept us apart. Um, sharing life together deeply in small groups. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's. It, those things that I read them and I get excited yeah. about the church, yeah. which frankly, when I just read a, a piece widely circulated, the Episcopal church is dead. Yeah. 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 And you know what? <laughs> we just got done with Good Friday and Easter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The church maybe has to die. Yeah. Maybe we have to get over our edifice complex. Yeah. And my rector, Lisa Wines Heinsen, um, it, it won't happen, but she said, I would be so happy if we could get rid of our building. <laughs> <laughs> think, of the, think of the hundreds of millions of dollars that would be available to us if we sold our buildings. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I'm not saying we should do that. Yeah. Because those that's holy ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to let go of the things that we cling to. Yeah. Um, is what NADA helped judicatories uh -huh. and con well, congregations all across the country sent us money and yeah. they adopted students and not in a, not in a uh, lady bountiful way, but they would bring yeah. these students out to Massachusetts to talk about their life in Christ. Yeah. Cool. And then these, these students would be adopted and they would be giving, 
you know, they're, everything would be underwritten for them. Now, mm. NADA paid all their tuitions, but these persons, these semin, these uh, parishes would would fund extra things. Yeah, yeah. And they, they would, I would ask them, well, so-and-so needs this. They, their car broke down. We'll buy a car. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that was wow. an example of this reaching across these barriers yeah. out of love. Yeah. Not where we have it you you want you know we want to give it to you but yeah you have so much we have so much let us yeah. share what we have wow. Wow. so those are those are examples of how how what nada stood for what i think the way of jesus stood for yeah i mean all you have to do is look at the biblical stories yeah the walls were broken down and and frankly the temple authorities conspired with the Romans to kill the guy that wanted everybody to do that. Yeah. So we have to expect there will be a cost yeah. of doing exactly what Jesus did and what I think the bishop is calling us to do. Amen. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could talk about this all day. You have clearly so many wonderful stories and such um, I, it's, it's just so, um, I feel so privileged to hear you tracing the path of the Holy Spirit um, across our history and across our future and across our, um, our diocese and beyond. So thank you so much for sharing that. I wonder, um, so we'll, I, I wanna hear more stories definitely, but um, for now, <laughs> for now, I wonder if you would be willing to close us in prayer. I will, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to close it with a, a Lakota ceremonial song. Thank you. Makako jina wajina, ohe yina wajinyelo, Jesus Christ, oya te wan, ohe yina wajinyelo, yelo. The words are honoring the Jesus nation, the Jesus people, that they might live. Amen. Amen. Over the River and Through the Woods is a production of the Episcopal Church in Minnesota. I am your host, Emilia C. Allen. Our theme music is by Jeff Kidder. Huge thanks to the Reverend Howard Anderson, to the many Indigenous leaders who have blessed our diocese over the generations, and to Bishop Whipple for forming our diocesan family. If you have a story to share, or if you know a story that you'd like to hear shared, please email me at news at episcopalmn.org. I can't wait to hear from you. Jesus Christ,